Welcome, LPs. Today we are doing an episode I have been excited about for a long time with Vlad Magdalene, the co-founder and CEO of Webflow. Did I say that right? Yep. All right, good. If you go for my full name, it's Vladimir Konstantinovich Magdalene. Well, it's, next time you're very, on the show, I'll yeah. have the whole uh, the whole thing prepped. It's very, uh, very intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> well, Webflow is a company I am personally very passionate about since I grew up as a web developer, always fighting between building websites from scratch in PHP and hand coding HTML and CSS. Ooh, PHP. Dude. Yeah, Facebook days. <laughs> the lamp stack, baby. Oh, boy. Uh, there were WYSIWYG editors You're out there. Then. I know, like Dreamweaver, uh, but they always required you to do all the hosting yourself. They, I, I don't know the state of the product today. This is like you know, twelve-year-old data, but generated garbage code. And uh, Webflow has been an amazing answer to provide the ease of use of a graphical user interface while still being an enormously powerful tool. And uh, we personally use the site for Acquired. Uh, we use it for PSL, and basically all of our portfolio companies use it as well. Uh, so glad awesome. it's it's so powerful that even you know i can now update the website and add, <laughs> <laughs> which is you know the yeah. last time i wrote a line of code i think i was probably maybe 20 years old so yeah vlad i have the designer credit so one year ago david, yeah. has, an, david has an editor login thank Got you it. vlad Got that's it. So that says a lot <laughs> yeah. Uh, so listeners, who is Vlad? Well, Webflow, you know, while most of you may know this company only from the last year or two, it is a at least decade old company that I believe, Vlad, you started as a side project in 2005? Yep. Uh, it was actually something that started when I was still in college, ah. uh, when I was working at an agency part time as an intern, and then turned into my senior project, then turned into uh, a couple failed attempts at starting it as a business then i joined into it sort of worked there for a while then had another failed attempt at turning into a business uh during sort of the web 2.0 heyday and then finally started it hopefully for the last time in 2012 wow, wow. all attempts to start the same business same business same name different co-founders every time two of those attempts just by myself uh sort of looking wow. for a co-founder the third attempt actually was with two intuit buddies uh one of which uh, so that attempt didn't work out and can go into sort of like the history behind that, but sort of fizzled out. And over time, one of those co-founders ended up starting his own company, got into YC, got acquired by Stripe, and then came back as a senior product manager here. So now he as one of our product leaders. The circle wow. of life. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So I sort of worked on it in many different iterations with multiple people. And uh, finally, something worked. So, wow. Wow. That's so cool. Well, so we'll get into all of that. So it's the 2012 version. That was the the start of the company. That's that we, the best vintage so far. We know uh, it today. Far, yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. And you, I think it only raised maybe a, a few million dollars between then and, and now when you did the... I yeah. Think. So we started in 2012, started that with my brother, and then one of my buddies from Intuit joined uh, a few months later, Bryant. Ended up being the third co-founder. And then we, about a year later, we got into YC and then did uh, a seed round, which at the time seemed huge. It was $1.4 <laughs> million, uh, even though other companies were you know, closing their seed rounds much faster or uh, they were bigger. And then we ended up doing a small, well, small relative to today extension of another 1.5 about a year later. And then got to profitability and sort of didn't worry about funding for a long time. And that was what, 2015 you got to profitability? Late 2015, yeah. Awesome. 
Listeners, you should know the, the company then uh, for the last four years has raised no money, as, as Vlad said, and then this year raised a $72 million Series A from Excel that is coinciding today with sort of this no-code movement. So I think we'll, we'll get in a little bit of that uh, later on. But Vlad, I want to go back sort of to the, the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, you alluded to how you started Webflow. Can we talk all the way back, like your yeah. college project? Like right. what was your initial conception of what it could be? And I, my understanding, it was called Webflow in uh-huh. every one of these iterations. Yep. But what was different about the ethos and what you thought the product needed yeah. to be in the world? Yeah, so originally when when the first uh, first idea came across, it was not uh, designed to be like a visual landing page builder. Sort of in the days where Ruby on Rails was first becoming a thing where there was kind of like this idea that, hey, you don't have to like program everything. You can sort of like write yeah. some configuration and, you know, it'll scaffold out some, uh, you know, the database for you or whatever. The key insight came, so I was like following all these tutorials and trying to find out how people are building apps. I think the thing that that is is important here is that I was going to art school right before that. I wanted to study 3D animation, wanted to work at Pixar. That was sort of the dream job. That got too expensive, so I I went back to um, uh, study computer science, kind of finally listened to my dad. I was like, hey, that might be a better (laughs) career path. Was your dad or your family engineers? Uh, Sort of. So we... We all grew up in Russia, and my dad was sort of like Russia was ten plus years behind on technology. Uh, so it wasn't I wouldn't call it computer engineering. It was more like get old computers and try to repair them and try to find schematics. And my dad did do some programming, but he was mostly sort of like IT kind of set up networks, install uh, software mainframes and yeah, it wasn't it wasn't like mainframes, but it was uh, kind of computer administration. And he was sort of the guy to go to to get software, uh, which you know at the time was not not always on the up and up. I'll probably throw my dad under the bus here, but it's been a while. <laughs> Statue of limitations or whatever. And we all know what we did with Photoshop back in the day. <laughs> Some of our more classic episodes, we should talk a lot about like software distribution. You yeah. know, back in the day, there was no internet distribution. It was, uh, well, there was, but it was not on the up and up. Right. Um, yeah. And that'd be really fun. Maybe when we cover Microsoft to talk about distribution, legal and otherwise uh, in that area. Yeah, I think a lot of people's careers are built on that. Like, you know, I I first got into graphic design using CorelDRAW, which I remember downloading from somewhere and then Photoshop, et cetera. Yep. I remember Microsoft had the strategy of like, you know, whatever. You know, as long as people get used to it, which is sort of the strategy in Russia and China, like they built their entire business on it and then, and then you monetize. But, you know, that's a whole probably different episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, it probably in a lot of ways leads into you know, Webflow, right? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, in your premium model and uh, all that. Right, yeah. Uh, well, anyway, jumping back to the original sort of insight was I was working at this agency and my whole job was, was a creative department and they were doing, uh, you know, we're building these CMSs for large companies like Apple, HP, Tennis Channel, Quicksilver, et cetera. So this amazing creative department, they were doing like the websites, like designing what they were going to look like. And my entire job as an intern, I was being paid minimum wage plus a dollar, which I was really proud of. My entire job was to take their designs and put it into this custom CMS that the company had. The entire workflow was look at the layout, right, build it in HTML and CSS, and then write out the SQL to like update, read, uh, like 
fetch data, update it, delete it, uh, etc. So it was pretty repetitive, right? Like every different data object was sort of like the same thing with slightly different variables or whatever. And then, you know, it was sort of like, okay with that, that was sort of the state of the world. And then one day, uh, I wasn't supposed to see this, but on the, on the desk of the creative director was an invoice for the tennis channel. And each line item was for like each data object, like player, program, or whatever. Oh. Things that took me like three or four days to implement per, I mean, plus the design cost. I'm not sure how many days that took to, to design. That was like the truly innovative work, you know, like create the brand, work with the br- customer to sort of like tell a visual story or whatever. And each line item for like that I was probably being paid three to four hundred dollars yeah, a week right. to you do know, was over a hundred thousand dollars because that was the value <laughs> that it provided and immediately i was like shoot like this needs to wow. be automated where that design team should at least have and, and the original insight was not like a design tool that sort of generates the stuff but a um almost like a visual logic builder yeah. for ruby on rails to generate i see uh like the things you would write out that would scaffold things one layer above that like a visual sort of drag and drop thing like a form builder that would then scaffold out the scaffold <laughs> sort so, of yeah. uh configuration so what, what, what time frame was this like early 2000s this was 2000 end of 2004 2005 wow. ish that's uh, crazy i mean you think about like so we're already like getting into the web 2.0 era yep and yep. old school companies are still paying a hundred thousand oh, dollars yeah. i mean they're doing that today yeah I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing sure. that today with like Sitecore and all these massive like drupal installations yeah. that's just like because yeah. oh, it's it's super valuable it's uh, totally like I, I worked at the wall street journal briefly and um you know our cms and mm-hmm. the amount of money that we paid mm-hmm. in consulting fees and so and it was just like it was insanity yeah you could probably build a better product on webflow now hey yeah absolutely flies like uh certainly you can. <laughs> <laughs> well listeners this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on acq2 quarter Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. 
Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. So this code generation yeah. was kind of the initial. That was the initial thing more for like the back end side of things. Yeah. Like how do how do I generate the, you know, the, the like database. How do you automate your own job? How, how do you, yeah, how do you automate like the forms that, taken data how do you automate but it was still like in order to like pull that into a you know a template i was still imagining you have to write html and css and sort of like uh you know marry it to data the Mm. same way that you would with react and graphql today or whatever so that insight didn't come and i sort of wrote my senior project on that concept of like how do you automate the creation of sort of back-end flows without uh, needing a developer and and i think i was still of the opinion because i spent so much time and so much uh, effort learning html and css that i didn't believe that it was possible to automate at that point mm. isn't it funny how that's like a, a trend where if something once you acquire what you consider to be unique knowledge you're mm-hmm. like oh this isn't something that software can do like yeah, now yeah. i hold the magical keys right, to right, accomplish right. this thing exactly yeah so the third attempt uh 2007 going on 2008 when i tried to start it with a couple uh, intuit buddies this was already when, you know, Web 2.0 was like in full swing. Y Combinator was a thing. Uh, they had a couple batches already. The convertible notes were starting to become kind of like a common way to get started quickly. We got incorporated. Uh, we did the whole thing around, you know, splitting the company into equity or whatever. Started building like pitch decks, started talking to investors. Were you in Y Combinator at this point? No, 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 no. no. This was like, you know, we were planning to apply. We had created the C Corp or whatever. Then Weebly became kind of like a a big thing. We're like, oh, crap. You know, they're kind of, uh, we knew that they weren't doing like every, they they were doing very cookie cutter sort of template stuff. You couldn't do a lot of like back endy, like custom data things. So we still thought there was an opportunity there. Uh, But how did that compare to Squarespace at the time? It was very similar. I think Weebly was just more. I think they were lower priced and they were going for the like strikingly later became another version of that that is even lower priced that you could like build landing pages even faster. But it was still very much the, you know, targeted directly at small businesses. You like pick a template, move some stuff around and press publish. And I think they had an e-commerce component, but I I don't remember. But anyway, I, I just remember feeling intimidated by them because it was sort of like, oh, well, they're in, they got into YC and, you know, it's sort of game over for us. They're uh, Well, this is what, what, we keep going with this story, but I, I want to come back at some point and talk about, you see this sometimes in a, in a category where it can feel like it's overcrowded. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, you know, we could reel off a ton of, yep. you know, quasi-competitors to you right. guys. And yet, you know, mm-hmm. there's room for differentiation and for multiple really big companies to be built. That is the case looking backwards when we were in yeah, it. We're like, it ah, crap, way, I'm sure. you know, we're we're way behind. Right. And I don't know if it's worth sort of pursuing that. Um, you also don't know what the market segments are going to evolve into. So you right. when you're pitching yourself as or we're honestly just emotionally trying to decide where do we fit into this puzzle Mm -hmm. like you don't know where the big pieces are going to be you don't know what pieces sound good but are actually going to be non-existent right and that's that's something i'll I'll get to a little bit later but you 
even have those thoughts when you have some semblance of product market fit, you know, when things are working and then you're kind of like, well, they're not working well enough, so we must have something something off or whatever. That that third attempt actually failed for just stupid reasons because we had incorporated and then we filed for a trademark and then filing for the trademark because we had the domain and I thought like getting the domain was the hardest part in the web 2.0 era, right? <laughs> like when everybody was dropping letters just to get, you know, something to work. We were like, okay, we got all of our bases covered, so we filed for a trademark. And then because we filed for a trademark, I guess somebody who already owned a trademark for Webflow for like a different category or whatever, they saw that on, on their trademark, uh, you know, notification service or whatever. And they sent us a, you know, cease and desist, like, hey, we already have uh, like an early filing. It was like this company in Florida. And I guess they were developing a product in sort of some, not not a website creation space, but like an e-learning space that had something to do with websites. Uh, So that started a whole sort of like, we basically ran out of money uh, trying to like fight that oh no uh, and, and so then, had you raised money we had not raised money this okay. was like we got we got like 15 grand from you know lawyers to sort of like hey we'll cover we'll take like a small cut of equity and we'll cover your incorporation or whatever you don't have to worry about it until you raise and then just some personal money that starting from scratch was mostly on credit cards so you're not you didn't raise money you're not generating revenue and you're already embroiled in a legal battle exactly uh it was i wouldn't call a legal battle it's more like you know like there was a volley lobbed at us and we're like it was more of a battle with our lawyers and then tell them telling us it's not worth it like you're just gonna pay us tens of thousands of dollars just to send emails back and forth and these are like you know high-powered silicon valley lawyers that are like at the time it was like $500 an hour or something like that. So we got totally discouraged. We were like sort of went back to the drawing board, started looking for new names, created a bunch of logos for like this new version called Marked Up, like, you know, HTML Markup, yeah, yeah. Uh, except it was M-A-R-K-D-U-P because, you know, you couldn't get the domain. <laughs> um, Marked Up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like now that would mean um, like a uh, like a venture firm that does gross stage rounds marked up. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. The idea of running a company called Marked Up and us spending like four months on trying to rebrand and like one of the co-founders sort of dropped out and we all started, you know, this was our first job at Intuit. So we kind of had to like, the idea first came when we were in the very, very early few months when there wasn't a lot of like pressure or work. Uh, but then, you know, work picked up and it sort of fizzled out, um, especially since like I personally was really discouraged by not being able to use the name. And the job got interesting at Intuit. So yeah. what, what were you doing there? Uh, initially was working on payroll, which is not great. But then about a year in, I switched to their innovation lab, which was amazing. Like I got to work on this product that essentially I invented in uh, what they call 10% time or white space time. Uh, it was called Brainstorm. It was around sharing ideas internally. It was almost like a like a Facebook, an internal Facebook for sharing ideas, like centered around business ideas where you can like develop them get like execs to um sort of sponsor them then they would have like idea jams and and did anything ever ship out of that a ton of things oh cool like uh it was like the first version of 
TurboTax on mobile. Uh, huh. I remember coalescing as like a small team through Idea Jams. We had thousands of ideas, and then and then a bunch of them actually made it, it to become products. We ended up productizing it, selling it to a bunch of other companies. It became like a multi-million um, kind of AR wow. type business. And a pretty small team. That's cool. Uh, this is a total aside. We got to cover into it someday because that's a talk about narrative violation. <laughs> I'm laughing because the the New York Times article. And, yeah. uh, first time acquired made the New York Times. We were Ben was quoted as. Um, uh, talking about narrative violation. Uh, but, uh, yeah. but I feel like people think about Intuit as this like super stodgy, old school, not innovative, not fun company. But I think that's it's actually a, not the case at it's all. It's not the case at all. Yeah. I think it's a great company. Like they put a lot of thought into empowering people to uh, bring their best ideas forward. And like the founder, Scott Cook, is yeah, like Scott always Cook. around roaming the halls. Like uh, especially I remember in our cohort when we joined straight out of college, like I think he was spending more time with us than like other parts of the business. And and that was just, maybe that says something about other parts of the business. I don't know. Uh, but it was really, I, I think it was a... Well, didn't um, Bill Campbell, the coach, right, was yeah, uh, yeah. into it. Yep. And, um, yeah. He actually... John Donahoe at eBay came from into it too. Is that, I think so. that right? Yeah. Uh, Bill Campbell is actually the... So, so this business, we were going to spin it out into a separate thing because it had nothing to do with into its sort of like core thing. And this is the product for companies to empower individual ideas to Correct. sort of rise to Correct. the top. Yeah, because like into its whole sort of shtick is like small business yep. software, right? Like taxes and accounting. And we had this sort of uh, tiny, by their standards, uh, SaaS product for idea exchange exchange or whatever so they're going to spin it out but at the end of the day bill campbell said it's probably not a good idea to to set the set the standard of like into it you know subsidizing startups that had nothing to do with the core business <laughs> which i think was the right call but anyway during that time when you know it was pretty clear that into was not going to keep prioritizing this brainstorm thing i started working with my brother who was the best designer I knew, my younger brother. He was working at the skate shop in San Diego. And we started building a bunch of websites together just for siding income. I had kids at this point, trying to make ends meet, you know, planning to buy a house. So was trying to get all the income I could get. I uh, started with like my dad's boss, who was a dentist, uh, built his website. Dentists know other dentists, sort of recommended uh, to other dentists. Ended up building it's a bunch of dentist websites. Strategy. Yeah. Yeah, we, we almost started expanding to orthodontists. Um, <laughs> actually, dentists, if, if you're listening uh, and people run agencies, like dentists are the best because they are not super price sensitive. Yeah. Uh, they do a lot of business through their websites and usually use like super old bills that somebody else created for them for like tens of thousands of dollars. They're not getting value out of. So if you're building websites, dentists are the way to go. <laughs> We were just like jamming on creating all these websites and, you know, he would design them in Photoshop and they were, you know, every every project was different, like sort of talk to the client, see what they need, what kind of story they want to tell or whatever. And dentists have stories to tell, apparently. And I would have audience. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> um, it's there's, early in the there's morning a here pun. recording. Yeah, uh, there's a bunch of puns in there. I was building all of them in WordPress. So I was like, translate them to HTML and CSS or whatever. And that's when finally the the final idea of like, okay, what I'm doing is not just repetitive on like creating, you know, these custom post types or databases or whatever, but every almost every single build that I'm doing is kind of the same thing. 
the same sort of workflow for creating layouts, the same kind of workflow for creating pages. And I was getting honestly really tired of it because it was like really tedious for Sergi. It was really exciting because every new design is a new project. You know, you kind of do it once, you get it over with where I was dealing with, you know, WordPress installs and, and theme upgrades and security patches and hosting and uh, all this crap that you kind of mentioned <laughs> in the beginning. And it was so tedious that I just wanted out. And then when when this Intuit thing was sort of winding down, uh, out of the blue, I kid you not, end of 2011, to my house, I've moved like three times from sort of like the early Intuit days when we were living in the Bay Area, I was now in Sacramento, arrives, this five years later, an envelope, like a hard line envelope that has a trademark certificate in it for Webflow. Whoa. No From way. our, I guess from the original application and then something about the other uh, company in Florida, like their thing lapsed and they didn't renew <laughs> and we were on some list i still don't know how it happened wow. but it was like all right i was talking to my it's wife like, yeah exactly and we were already in the process of like buying a house uh trying to buy a house in, in sacramento and i was like okay this is a sign like wow. something something is is happening here That's um, a, 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 a total side but i was listening to um a uh, podcast with scott adams the mm-hmm. dilbert guy yeah and the same thing happened to him he mm-hmm. he was like a business dude yeah and uh he wanted to be a cartoonist so he talked to like a famous cartoonist and got some advice and it was like okay go ahead and then he's so he writes some cartoons sends mm-hmm. them out to everybody gets rejected and, uh, and he's like okay i gave it like a good try i'm gonna yep. go back to the business world a year later uh-huh. the dude he went to for advice sent him a letter in the mail and was like i just want to make sure you haven't given up yet and he got that <laughs> and was like okay <laughs> that's <laughs> let's let's do this for the universe yeah. telling you yeah yeah, yeah. But I, I still wasn't like super convinced. Uh, you know, I was kind of trying to plan. Okay, uh, you know, what's the what's the angle here, uh, et cetera. And responsive design started becoming a thing at that point. It was just all the you know you kind of like have one code base across breakpoints, and the same code base sort of responds as you resize your browser and sort of works on mobile, et cetera. It still didn't click. Like there was a huge opportunity there. Until one day, this was early 2012, somebody randomly shared a video on Facebook. Uh, this is when people used to use Facebook. Um, I don't know if you guys are... Sick burn. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about TikTok yeah, these days. Exactly. TikTok all day. I saw this video called Inventing on Principle from this guy, Brett Victor. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and it was all about direct manipulation, like how the the impact of uh, how direct manipulation like that sort of category of software has disrupted so many parts of what we know as technology today including like simple things like word processing it used to be that you have to like switch between modes yeah. like only programmers would be able to use it uh, to now we have like 3D animation software and like and he he painted this this whole picture of like being able to build games and define electric flows if you're you know trying to uh, trying to create like a circuit board or whatever where applying a visual language to something that's technically really you know traditionally more complicated where you have to do a lot of things in your brain and translate in your brain saw that video like immediately the next day put in my notice and said i'm i'm starting webflow like this is just like the combination of those things is just way too many signs and made the decision right there without another co-founder or whatever and then pretty soon after talked to sergio was like hey i need a designer can you help me out on like a contract basis uh and he's like i don't know i can't do that right now and then eventually uh like a month later convinced him to to join full-time 
That's yeah. awesome. I had not made this direct manipulation connection. Do you know what Brett Victor did before uh, releasing that video and before doing a lot of the research stuff that he's doing now? No, I think he was working at Apple, right? He was. And yeah. he, I believe, worked on the original iPhone I, team. Yep. And one of the core tenets of the iPhone and the thing, I think a lot of people call it multi-touch, but when, mm-hmm. when you really dig in, the one of the core tenets of that team was that things on the phone when you're interacting with them don't use a metaphor for interacting mm-hmm. like you don't have a button to close a window you close the window yeah. directly and mm-hmm. you don't computers to this point had very much been about using metaphors all the way to the, the mouse as a metaphor right, right. for the pointer on screen and the iphone was like no no no. you are we need the latency to be so low we need the pixels to be so close to the screen everything should feel like you're literally mm-hmm. interacting mm-hmm. with the objects it's where you get this incredible skeuomorphic design yep. and it makes so much sense that that would kickstart this era of why are we using all these translation layers and metaphors to mm-hmm. build websites yep. we should be directly interacting with. Exactly. Don't and that and that was, you know, that was the final spark. Uh, and that's exactly what Webflow became. It was like, how do you turn what developers are doing within a text editor and sort of like mentally mapping, okay, this is what I mean is this actually what I uh, what I want, right? Which is a totally different paradigm than how other creative disciplines work, right? You don't sculpt by you know pushing in and then going check going to check if that's what you meant. You sort of like have this direct connection uh, to to the thing that you're brings yeah. you closer to the art. Yeah, exactly. So th- this notion isn't brand new. Of we should have and the direct manipulation is a is a great insight and mm-hmm. the timing is interesting. But WYSIWYG web editors had existed before Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like the right ones run anywhere it'll finally be good this time like it's still not good this time so why is it that webflow is sort of has really found product market fit and created this nice product with a web-based WYSIWYG editor when it's failed so many times before so two things one i think if we tried the same exact thing in 2007 it would have failed Uh, And I'll tell you why. Like the reason direct manipulation works in Webflow is that we can actually not emulate. We have the real thing inside of the browser itself. So Webflow is built in a browser. You can sort of think of Webflow as DevTools or Web Inspector with a lot more visual tools on top, right? A lot of other WYSIWYG tools, what they try to do was like, hey, we're going to take a graphic design tool like Photoshop or or illustrator or sketch or whatever and we're going to try to randomly guess or, or best guess what the generated code should be it's the approach that doesn't respect the the core principles the core foundations of what the web is and the web is like you know you have these dom nodes uh and they're essentially boxes on top of boxes inside of boxes etc and everything's a box right you want to make a circle you have to make a box with rounded corners right that's a circle <laughs> uh or you have like a you know nsvg or something like that i think webflow is the very first application that that said okay here are the core primitives uh you know you have styles you have classes you have like css abstractions and what we're going to do is create a pretty shallow abstraction that that still forces you to understand those core principles, not necessarily the core syntax. Uh, so for example, when you're doing layout in, in Webflow, it's Flexbox or CSS Grid. You just don't know it. The visual tools built on top of it are a representation of those same like constraints and limitations. They're not like draw anything and, and then that, we'll try to guess what the code is, it's, right? It's literally like adjust the margin and the padding. Exactly. Just in a you're nice you're way. almost like one-to-one making code changes. You're just doing it through a different language. Mm. Uh, it's almost like if you're 
using software to create music, mm -hmm. uh, you have to understand the core principles of, of music. You might not, you know, have a piano in front of you, right? But you don't get to cheat by, by saying, I'm going to create like a, a masterpiece by not understanding like good rhythm and et cetera. So that's the same thing with Webflow. Like you, it, it does have a, a, a more you know, advanced learning curve because you have to understand the box model, because you have to understand, you don't just draw a box and then go like drag it anywhere. You have to think, okay, when the screen resizes, I have to think of this box as being 50% of the width of the current viewport, not 500 pixels, right? And then when I resize, I change it to 495 pixels or whatever. I sort of had to think in a more like relative, the way that a front-end developer would think, but we're erasing like 95% of the complexity and like knowing how to glue all these things together, uh, et cetera. And the other thing that made it possible was that when we first uh, started building it in 2012 was the first time that browsers were getting good enough. There was like Chrome 1.0 days. Uh, Safari and WebKit were kind of like on the same, they were using the same engine. Firefox and Internet Explorer were sort of like the old guard in terms of like, hey, this is like a way to uh, like view documents or whatever. But Google's really pushing Chrome as like a, an application platform. Like they were they, like Google Maps, that's sort of the standard of like what's, what's possible as an interactive type of thing in the browser. That wasn't possible in 2007, 2008, et cetera. So you, in, in order to create that full abstraction of like, I'm previewing exactly what's going to ship, you have to actually show that in the browser in an iframe or something. And browsers just didn't support that until like 2011, 2012, 2013 to be, to be really like, that's when, when browsers were like were kind of kicked into gear of like, holy crap, this is yeah. a, the next wave it's of an application platform. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Fascinating. Yeah, that's a, a rewinding a little bit. I remember buying shares of Google when they launched Chromebook and Chrome OS for this very uh, thesis. Uh -huh. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Uh -huh, uh -huh. There, Google is going to use its weight to push the browser yep. forward as an application platform. I then mm -hmm. sold them way too early. But <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Vlad, catch us up to today. Obviously, lots changed between yep. 2012 and 2019. What has Webflow evolved into? How do you d best describe it today? Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the company. Sure. We first started as a like a landing page builder. We're kind of thinking like how how do you empower Sergi to build dentist websites, right? And dentist websites only go so far. Yeah. So uh, did did the two of you co-founded as brothers? Is yes. That, that's that's yeah, the yeah. Yep. TLDR here. Uh, yep. That's awesome. Uh, and then and then Brian joined shortly after. He was just like we had worked together at Intuit, and then he went to co-found another company called Vungle. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, and wow. uh, like joined as soon as he could because there was a you know a lot that depended on him and then he joined and then a few months later we got into yc and then kind of hit the ground running after that when uh, you when you applied to yc how did you describe the company i mean at this point we're landing page builder <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're in 2012 yeah weebly's been around for a long time squarespace yeah. is around we did describe it as something like a professional website builder and very heavy emphasis on the professional as in like hey pick a random set of YC startups and our tool is the only one that can actually recreate their layouts because mm -hmm. we have the full power of CSS. Um, <laughs> we didn't have, you know, a CMS at that point. We didn't even have the ability to create multiple pages or whatever, but that was our, our shtick of like, there's a lot more power here. There's a whole story around how we applied to YC the first time in 2012 got rejected because you know we didn't have any traction even though it was kind of the same product and then in early 2013 we applied again went to our interview and I don't know if you know the general sequence but they give you a phone call if you're in and they send you an email if you're out on the same night of your interview so we got the phone call you know we're 
sort of passing time trying to uh, watch a movie, uh, you know, super nervous, <laughs> grabbed a few beers and got this phone call uh, from PB, Paul Bukite. And he's like, you're in, you know, we like jumping over the moon, call our families, set up dinner to start celebrating or whatever. Went back to finish the movie because it wasn't over. It was oblivion, <laughs> by the way. Um, <laughs> and I'm sort of like still nervously checking my phone for whatever reason. And then an email comes in uh, saying, I regret to inform you no way. that um, we loved your presentation, but we think your product is too like difficult to figure out for novice users and not powerful enough for developers or professional users, which is like exactly the reason we would give yeah. for, for rejecting us. Um, so we thought, okay, obviously the phone call was a mistake. They never said Webflow, never said anything Meanwhile, by name. it's Paul Bukite who like, is responsible for exactly Gmail, what we're just Gmail. talking about. Exactly. Google Maps and web applications. Exactly. Um, <laughs> it turns out the email was a mistake, <laughs> uh, but we had a whole hour of like trying to reach somebody over there, uh, oh, and oh. it was probably the the biggest roller coaster of emotions <laughs> of my entire life. Because at this uh, point, you you have your first kid already. I uh, had both kids. Yeah, both I had a kids. Three and a one year old. You've left your job. There, yeah, and they're driving to a restaurant to go celebrate. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um, and yeah, left my job. This was already nine months in we're like functionally broke at that point almost bankrupt uh my daughter has just had surgery for like a hernia that popped up out of nowhere we had like catastrophic health insurance so like at that point a lot was riding on uh on, on getting to YC. yeah exactly <laughs> wow. after that we sort of launched the landing the simple landing page builder and then started adding like all the things that like progressively got us closer to where we are today we added like animations and interactions then we added a cms which ended up being like a pretty big inflection for what's possible with Webflow because it's not just a, you know, like CMS for pages and blog posts. It's like literally you can build anything. This You're is collections. Collections, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it's almost like a visual database. Uh, mm -hmm. So you can create all sorts of relationships, et cetera. Um, Every and, acquired podcast episode is yeah. a collection item. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's very flexible. Uh, you should buy it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when Bezos gets interviewed on stage still, he's like, consider buying your loved ones a gift from Amazon.com. <laughs> You're like, really? Like, that's, the <laughs> yeah. that's where half but their really. sales come from. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think I'm on this podcast? <laughs> Just I'm joking. Um, but then Ben smiling yeah. face. <laughs> yeah, then we built uh, our e-commerce platform, which is essentially CMS plus the ability to charge uh, for things. And did now- you guys work with Shopify on that or? We did not. We uh, So for both the CMS, like originally the idea was like, do we work with WordPress? But you get 10X the benefit of not having to export to some other thing and having like that like translation layer that just it essentially means the difference between somebody being able to practice this stuff uh, and not. So uh, our, our visual CMS became- a way for people to like not even have to worry about that whole like handoff piece and the same thing with our visual commerce uh, engine it's essentially shopify without and the, all the things that you would need to rely on liquid for uh, which is shopify's templating language that developers have to use we put that power into designers hands so cool. it's uh, i mean obviously we're not like competitive with shopify on like a feature by feature basis because they've had like you know 15 year kind of lead on us if if that's if I'm doing my math right, but for you know small like uh, DTC type of brands, and and soon we're we're releasing like digital uh, subscriptions and things that are um, you know don't require shipping, etc. It's 
just a slam dunk because uh, d- you know, a small design shop or an individual freelancer can build all that stuff that a dev agency that's working on the Shopify platform can build at 10x the less time and less effort, et cetera. I, I was going to save this question for later, and I know I'm cutting you off right before you bring us to today, but I, I think this is the appropriate time to ask. There are like sort of frenemies and adjacencies and Mm -hmm. pseudo competitors all over the place. So how do you think about segmentation? Like what's the ideal customer profile where you're like, oh, Webflow is totally for you. But if you're this, if you have these needs Mm -hmm. in this direction, it's not for you. We have a sort of a broad segmentation. So we know that Webflow is not for you if you're like a a tiny SMB, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of building your own landing page or something like that. That's Squarespace, Weebly, Wix, exactly. And we're not for the enterprise where you're, you know, like Adobe Experience Manager or uh, Sitecore or whatever. We're like in this big fat middle where it's, you know, startups all the way up to like multi-hundred person sort of companies, marketing teams, et cetera, where, you know, you need a unique web presence, right? You're not going to get away with a template. You usually have like some sort of engineering talent, like working on on marketing stuff and moving more and more into not just like beyond just marketing, like all kinds of uh, applications. Uh, and I can talk more about that later. That's sort of our very wide but sweet spot of like, we're not going to pretend that we're an alternative to Squarespace uh, or Wix, even on a use, ease of use level, because we're as powerful as like a WordPress with all the um, kind of customization thereof, but without code. Uh, but it's kind of our journey too. We started on Squarespace and mm-hmm. then we you know, moved to you guys once yeah. we got to a point where like this became kind of a real business for us and we needed awesome. something more powerful. Yeah, and the idea is that that we'll continue improving at, at a pace that you, where you need never need to eject. The same way that Shopify, for example, if you're running a Shopify store, it's it's basically yeah, Tesla runs on Shopify. Exactly, like it's so it's one does. of those things where that is like your platform where you just worry about your business, worry about your products. They'll take care of the infrastructure. We want to be the same thing for not just uh, e-commerce, but anything web presence related. And that's why right now we're focusing really heavily on expanding beyond websites into web applications. Um, So over the next year... So you could build like a productivity tool in Webflow? That that is probably a couple <laughs> years out, but the first first big steps are uh, user authentication and okay. visual logic. Uh, that gets gets okay. you a lot closer to being able to build like more Ruby on Rails ish, like a SaaS type of, dashboard, exactly type thing, uh, exactly, or even simple things like simpler things like a product hunt or like a, a basic Airbnb or like a, a small social network or whatever. Yeah. Uh, or yeah, like, like for like. DLP show, right? Like you, we could have a special website, or like yeah, you can manage like yeah. you could create your own CRM. You could uh, manage all of your, you know, people can have sort of login accounts. That's they so can have access to specific. The idea is that you'll be able to uh, segment sort of based on transactions that you completed or whatever plan you're on that you specify. Like you have access to specific parts of the site, etc. It's kind of interesting. There's this world of like lifestyle businesses that generate low single digit millions of mm-hmm. revenue a year, which are kind of these fun things to own because once you build it, they kind of just spit off cash yeah. and they atrophy over time. So right. you're not, you know, the, the right, code's right. going to get old and crusty. But right now you have to be a developer to have that privilege right. to like have a little side business on the side where you've built a web app and you've targeted all the dentists you can and mm-hmm. like this vertical niche thing is where you're kind of lowering the barrier to that. Absolutely. And it's not just it, it's not just lowering the barrier. It's also a lot of how we think about this is not like replacement for what people are doing right now. It's the ability for 
a hundred, if not a thousand times more people to be able to access that power. And and talking about like crusty code, uh, a lot of times why that happens is because you you have to control the entire stack, right? Like right now, there's I can list, uh, you know, just out of the dentist websites I've built, how many things have like outdated <laughs> jQuery and like WordPress versions or whatever. Uh, however, when you look at like platforms like Shopify and especially Webflow, what you're doing is you're declaring the behavior and the look and feel, right? right. And you're abstracting behind, away. Yeah, exactly. Behind the scenes, like stuff is changing all the yeah, time. Yeah, you, like, you guys are upgrading. Exactly. Like, exactly. You're the developer. Exactly. Yeah. So, so stuff is changing. Like we've literally changed from jQuery to Knockout to React behind the scenes, like the way that sites are powered. CDNs have change all the time like versions of node and all these other technologies have changed uh, behind the scenes not a single one of our customers ever noticed we've solved like many you know uh, security issues through libraries that other people use or whatever we solve them centrally and then nobody ever hears about it you don't have to ever like do a template upgrade or a theme upgrade or whatever you're just like worried about like what this looks like what it functions like that's it yeah that's cool the other thing that i wanted to ask you about is this, well, let's drift into the no-code movement stuff. Yep. So I wouldn't describe Webflow as no-code. I would mm-hmm. describe it as code optional. And when you do want to write code, you can write almost whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't yeah. like go create a, a whole right. new like view controller or something. Or, Correct, yeah. but, but like if I want to put a whole bunch of JavaScript into a single page or an entire collection of pages or whatever, like I can. Yep. And so how has that thinking evolved for you where Webflow five years ago, three years ago, no mm-hmm. code was not a thing. And right. now it's sort of a, uh, a movement and mm-hmm. um, something that, frankly, you get to be a nice champion of. Yep. When something comes along like that, that's not exactly what you're doing, but is very close, how do you adopt it? And you're right. Like Webflow is very, very much like a code optional type of tool. The aspiration is that it becomes a lot closer to no code over time, uh, because a lot of the things that people have to pull in code for in Webflow today is just the limitation of the platform. It just just means the building blocks are not available, right? Like if I want to do something as simple as you know add like a Mapbox integration that pulls. Maybe you do like podcasts and then for whatever reason you have latitude and longitude sort of like locations where you did these podcasts, you want to show them on a map. The ability to say like, okay, here's our last 20 things like pointed on a map. That's a pretty simple building block of like, you know, I want to like drag in a map box thing and like map it to uh, some of my collections. We just don't have that, right? Like, so you have to pull in code, look up the API or whatever. So right now we're kind of in this territory where for a lot of websites, like everything's available, right? But as you get more and more uh, sort of niche, like there's a huge long tail of things that have to be implemented in code. And the idea with no code is that you you find those, uh, like the first person that has to, let's say build a Mapbox integration, right? They could, and this is something that we're working on now, they create sort of a plugin that's more of a no-code API where they do the work of like looking at Webflow's uh, sort of internal APIs and saying like, hey, now here's a Mapbox building block. The only thing you really need to do is like paste in your API key. If you are a Mapbox customer or whatever, then you drag it in and then your interface is is totally visual where you're saying, okay, I want to bind this thing here or I want to change the color of these pins or whatever. One developer has to do that work, not end developers tens of thousands of developers that that yeah, ever want that on their site very much so how the wordpress plugin ecosystem exactly well, and, and, and shopify too exactly. i mean this is the shopify developer platform it's like, very much like standing on the shoulders of giants like not not redoing the same like the same way that the, the developer community works with like npm or whatever you're not rewriting your own like search algorithm you're just like going and searching on github and getting the best library or whatever pulling it in and this really shifts from webflow the tool company to webflow the platform company absolutely Yep. And we're already seeing a lot of that sort of 
just by the nature of how people are building and how the community is growing. Like there's a lot of side marketplaces of people like selling components and templates and entire businesses uh, built around the Webflow ecosystem. We just haven't like formalized it yet with uh, our upcoming plugin marketplace. That's that's going to be like the, you know, the official way to, you know, extend Webflow in a first party way by third parties where you don't have to kind of like, hey, take this code and paste it into like a custom embed block or whatever. So ideally over time, those exceptions where you have to get down into code are less and less and they get into sort of like 1% territory, not 20% territory. And that's when we could say that, okay, we've reached our aspiration. But that's the the idea with, with no code as a movement is that when you say the differentiator between no code and low code is that low code makes this sort of implicit uh, admission that in order to really finish a project, I'm going to need a developer or I'm going to need to know how to like take it across that like last mile. Yeah. Um, or at least to make it really powerful. Or something. Exactly. And no code, the aspiration is that you, for the vast majority of cases, you will not need that. And when you do, there's an approach to having it, like one or a few developers create sort of like the no code version uh, that abstracts away the low code version and then put that into the hands of millions more people. Will I be able to make money as a plugin developer? Absolutely. Maybe if that's the maybe that's the side hustle to yeah. If you start working on, <laughs> I mean, a ton of people are already making money selling Webflow templates, and Webflow templates the the thing that makes them different from WordPress templates is that they're built visually. But what makes them uh, different from like uh, Squarespace and Wix and all those templates is that all of ours are actually built inside the tool itself. Uh, so it's it's almost like <laughs> so meta. all of them start from scratch, right? And there's just a point in time where designers are like, okay, this is good enough for me to like monetize. And the, the sky's the limit from there. Like anybody who can use Webflow who becomes like a Webflow expert can now uh, monetize their templates. And soon it's going to be application templates, right? That are way more expensive. Like let's say I spin up a podcast uh, template that has like right, that ratings and use yeah, exactly yeah. like, uh, I mean, or all like, the, you know, I want to build a marketplace. Like I'm, I'm launching an MVP for a marketplace. Exactly. Like, like here's an Airbnb <laughs> template, yeah. right? You could be a, a, like someone could build Ning on your platform. Like yep. it could recreate yeah. this social network. Well, like we talked about in, um, you know, with with the Rover when when Rover started, you know, the directive <laughs> from go from Greg and me to, to Phil was like, <laughs> go to Airbnb.com. Copy redo everything. that, you know, <laughs> and, it, and we had to get you know Phil, who dropped out of college, was a CS major, to do that, and it took him months. Yeah. Instead, we could go to Webflow and be like... That's the idea. Boom. And, and the, the idea there is right now, the people who are able to create those uh, those things with code, they l- literally represent 0.3% of the population. Yeah. Uh, that's such a tiny uh, fraction that, you know, so much potential is left off the table. Like, we just don't know. It's almost like if spreadsheets were available to that, that few people. Sure, like, no-code tools aren't going to cover 100% of, like, the software development space, but the space that they do cover is going to cover the majority of like these simpler crud-based apps uh, which were the foundations of like Airbnb and Twitter etc and, and all these you know yeah. foundational businesses that have like transformed how how we live and like yeah. uh, how the internet works. To, to the extent that this works and becomes incredibly pervasive if you think about it from a macroeconomic perspective what it really does is it forces companies to work or not work based on not their ability to execute building an application but more their ability to understand their their customers and 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 distribute to them absolutely and that's that's honestly the hard part 
right? Like yeah. understanding the the as you know, your own story illustrates. Yeah, like <laughs> the the way that you create a take something simple, right? Like you want to create sort of a way to manage a podcast show, right? Where you might have uh, you might set up these like visual flows around like hey, when I upload something, it goes to like an approval process and and whatever. You have to understand your own pain around this. You have to understand like what uh, what works, what doesn't. Knowing how to translate that into you know HTML, CSS, Ruby on Rails, Node Express, whatever PHP. Again, it, that's all it is. It's a translation sort of like mechanism. If you're able to declare that in a way that doesn't require all that complexity, it just removes more uh, kind of barriers between you, your idea, and getting it out there. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. All right, I want to shift to this era of productivity that we're in. Mm-hmm. So, like, we're in this, in this crazy era with both productivity and creativity software. So, we had uh, Rahul from Superhuman on the show. Recently, we've seen the rise of Notion, Airtable, Sketch, mm-hmm. Figma. You guys, why is this happening now? A lot of it goes to just the fact that the web platform is now so mature and there's no longer limitation of what you can build in the browser. Sure, the browser's like single threaded, you can have like only a certain amount of, you know, memory or whatever. But the advances we've made over the last like six years especially just means that you don't have like this this barrier of like somebody else install something or whatever in order to say like, oh, here's like web class type of software, which is like simple forms or whatever. And here's like software software type of software, like uh, you know, Photoshop or whatever. Now you have like Webflow and Figma, like these like pushing the limits of what you can do, not just in a browser but in software period right plus the combination of like the distribution mechanisms of the of the internet like everyone is now relying on uh sort of like a de facto truth that connected software like google sheets and you know google docs or whatever is you know the most uh effective way to like even even our lawyers right are are tired of sending red lines back and forth (laughs) whereas even two years ago it was like uh kind of that's the way that lawyers work right so i think it's it's been a lot of like cultural change a lot of uh technological change that's sort of like okay, now people don't conceptualize these barriers as like reasons not to do something and and people are more in the like optimistic dreaming mode of like yeah. what's possible. Well, here. I mentioned it's also, you know, back to your dad yeah. and like it's, it's distribution too, yeah. right? Like because the web has this powerful software now, mm-hmm. you don't have to, like in the past, if you're like, oh, I want to do this, all right, I'm going to go to CompUSA and I'm going to yeah. buy Photoshop <laughs> and I'm going to install it on my machine. Like, screw all that. Yeah. Plus, so there's just like the ease, but then there's also the business model. Yeah. Like all of this software that we're talking about, it's all freemium software. Like mm-hmm. there's no risk. You just like, yep. you know, tell one password to generate a, you know, generate yeah, a yeah. password for you and then you're in and you're using the thing and you haven't mm-hmm. paid anything, yep. right? Like, and it's, and you get this incredibly powerful tool that's democratized all of this. Yeah, it kind of feeds on itself because yeah. that, that allows people to, sort of for free uh, with fewer barriers, create new products or ideate new products, then actually build them, et cetera. It's kind of like uh, the way I think about Webflow sometimes is sort of what AWS did for hardware. Like you used to have to know how to buy your own machines and rack your own servers and replace your own hard drives and configure RAID and all this stuff. And now even though AWS is pretty complex, it just hit a huge category of problems away from developers where you don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. You're just like, I need computing power and boom, you just pay for it and and yeah. uh, it's pretty cheap Scales. and you don't have to worry about what, you know, power going out or whatever. And I think we need the same, and that's the journey we're on, that we need the same thing for the software side of things of like, how do you abstract away as many of these complexities as possible so that 
people who are experts at this stuff like really are sweating it, like things like performance and accessibility, et cetera, but especially like hosting and things that touch hardware and infrastructure and, and scaling and uh, whatever. You're never going to have people come, uh, you know, even me as a software engineer that's been doing this for like 20 years. I don't know the stuff like even to 1% of what like, you know, infrastructure engineers understand, right? So that problem really only needs to be solved by a few people. uh, And then that can be scaled and made available to millions, if not billions. So So you you say you as a software engineer, are you still writing code? uh, Absolutely not. (laughs) I use, I'm a visual developer now. I use Webflow. (laughs) But also that's, that's mostly because I want to get out of my team's hair. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. When did that stop? This is, I want to transition a little bit into founder journey here. Yeah. Um, that was actually one of the hardest transitions that I made because I was the original engineer on Webflow. I built all of the front end myself and then and then Brian joined and built the back end and kind of like the dashboard piece. And then the next five years, I was really heavily involved in coding. And, and that was like more and more emerged as a problem because A, either I was the only person aware of sort of how things worked. And therefore, I was the only one who worked on like some pretty critical things. Or I was um, like distracted for weeks writing code when I should have been doing something way more way more needed by the team, like hiring hiring more people or uh, really thinking about company building and, and culture building and, and setting up ways for all of us to collaborate, et cetera. And all the things that you kind of have to graduate to uh, once you once you stop coding. And for me, that was a, I think I was really emotionally attached to writing code. That was like, I found a lot of satisfaction from that. And I never imagined that I would uh, like have a fulfilling life with, with the absence of that. But surprise, surprise, I haven't been doing it for like two and a half years. And be, I think because it was a slow transition, it was easier for me to see how I can get satisfaction and fulfillment from higher leverage things like being able to you know hire five engineers that were then able to do way more than I could do in the same amount of time and seeing the impact of like how fulfilled they feel like working on that team so I got satisfaction of seeing like that kind of impact multiplied yeah it's the that dopamine hit that you get when your code works Uh you you can you can get in a slower more spread out way but a much higher leverage way from empowering others yeah one thing one thing I'll say though is there's something to kind of getting into flow state and mm-hmm. getting a, a you know a machine to work or yeah. the, the thing to work totally but it's also way more predictable and a lot easier <laughs> honestly than like building teams yeah uh, people the, people are not as predictable right. yeah. uh you know they're they're not state machines they're, yeah their compilers change all the time <laughs> um and you know memory is not uh, <laughs> <laughs> Leaky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but, you know, it's a lot more satisfying when, when you get it right. Well, so this is a good kind of transition maybe to bring it all back to all this together. You know, you guys as a company have not taken, despite, you know, we're here mm-hmm. on, you know, 11th Street in Soma and, you know, San Francisco and the heart of Silicon Valley, you did by Combinator, you know, blah, blah, but yep. but you haven't taken the traditional path either. Mm-hmm. Like, so you, you did by C finally on the third attempt to start the company. Mm-hmm. You raised the seed round, right? And then a small extension. And then years go by and you guys are just running and building. Like how, how did that journey go? Did you intentionally decide, you know, well, A, how did you, how did you get to profitability? Mm-hmm. Was that an intentional decision and then a decision not to raise more capital until just now? Yeah. How, how did, how did you think about all that? It was kind of a combination of intentionality and, and accident. So after we raised, we kind of we knew we had to build a lot of things. We knew we had to build a CMS. We we knew we had to. And keep this was work. after the three million. 
Uh, exactly. So this was early 2014. We just weren't growing fast enough to be able to sort of justify a full uh, A round. And I think we realized that pretty early when we still had a lot of cash in the bank. Um, and Was and that you guys realizing that or your investors? Or no, us realizing it because like so much of Webflow is reliant on being able to meet a certain functionality bar for people yeah. to be able to base their entire business on you, right? So the first first few years up until 2015, mid 2015, there was so many, like it was a very high churn type of situation where, and a lot relied on our export tool where you would like use it for projects uh, and then take it somewhere else, right? We realized that like it was a tool product essentially. And our main competitor at that point, like on a, I don't know, category level is Adobe, right? And the way that people thought about us was like, oh, it's just another Adobe. Uh, but we didn't have like the entire other suite of products, right? So you you didn't have anything like holding you there if your project was over and you were only building one project because um, we didn't have the creative suite or whatever. So we realized then like our option, uh, and I think around the time Paul Graham had his uh, essay around uh, like default alive, default dead. Yeah, uh, so good. And we really wanted to do whatever was possible to get to default alive. We thought that that would give us a lot more optionality and it was mostly like a survival thing. Like, hey, we're pretty sure we're not going to be able to raise more money. Let's just get to, you know, hire a little slower, uh, try to get growth as high as possible so that we kind of are in control of our own destiny. And once you reach that, you stop thinking about fundraising, right? Because you're able to operate on a monthly basis. You're like more or less break even. Cash balance goes up. Uh, and we were operating in that mentality for like the next two, three years. But then we realized, uh, which is what led us to this fundraising. Oh, uh, rewind back a little bit. Almost all conversations with investors at that point, even when people find out like you're profitable or, or close to it, a lot of the conversations were not inspiring at all. It was sort of like, okay, how do we get you know more businesses using this, right? Even conversations around like, oh, well, Google would be interested in an acquisition kind of thing. Like almost thinking about sort of like local optimization of revenue and how do we get go into enterprise? Like, oh, these enterprise deals that you've signed before, they could be like a quarter million dollars or whatever. Let's focus everything on that. Well, like why would we care about... 2,500 customers paying us, you know, this small amount of money, we're going to have one customer that pays us a quarter million dollars or whatever. And that was a very sort of like a philosophically, um, we had this kind of opposition to it, thinking that if we do get pulled in that direction by investors, then it's very hard to go back and and create a democratizing product for, for adoption that empowers a lot more people. Well, you're going to have to, you know, it's the classic problem if you go that path where you're going to have to create custom features for each yep. client that's paying you a million dollars exactly next thing you know you're like you've gone from this incredible platform opportunity mm-hmm. to an outsourced dev shop exactly and it wasn't until uh when we started talking because we've been talking to excel for like three years and it wasn't until we met arun that was like a full uh, what would i call it? like a mind meld yeah. of opportunity of like the future opportunity like hey this website thing is interesting like we're you know we're we're just a tiny fraction of like the wordpress wordpress's market share like wordpress is like 40% we're like 0.1 right uh in terms of a business they're you know they're like 300 million dollars or whatever we're above 20 but like I had a much smaller fraction of that entire uh, like space that wasn't even part of the conversation. Like that's interesting. And there's a huge opportunity there. But think about this opportunity of like creating software, like the, the amount of like new companies that can be created, the amount of new services that can be created, the amount of like uh, new ideas that can sort of become a reality that are already like percolating in people's heads uh, and, and people are just not building them because they don't have the, the right tools. That is just a vastly 
more powerful opportunity that we don't even know how to quantify, like how to even like work up the TAM for that. Yeah. Um, well, it's really the difference, you know, and uh, Arun at Excel has been a good buddy of mine for many years. We were classmates at GSP together and, you know, I just you know, kind of seen his thought process through this. You know, Excel, like most investors until recently when this has become in vogue, would look at a company like you guys and what they're thinking when they're telling you about enterprise, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. They're thinking like, oh, great, this is going to be an acquisition. Like, how are we going to flip this for a couple hundred million? And I think Arun and Excel were one of the first folks to see like, no, 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 you can build really big standalone companies Mm -hmm. like Atlassian, like Qualtrics, Mm -hmm. you know, like like Squarespace where they're investors, you know, and not sell them. Yep. that's the goal here. Like we haven't even discussed an IPO or an exit strategy. Like there's no exit strategy. We're building Webflow. We probably built 5% of the things that we want to build. It's going to take another couple decades to get to that, that full vision, if not longer. Uh, so still having fun and uh, there's no reason to change course. I don't think. Love it. Well, final question that we always like to ask is, uh, is there anything that, that we didn't ask you about or that you would like to say to an audience of, you know, primarily founders and aspiring founders? I wish that somebody had given me this advice sooner is don't focus on perfection, just ship sooner. Like ship, deliver value as quickly as you have it. We have been learning that lesson over and over and I think we still have to learn it where there's like this tendency to think, okay, everything has to be perfect or nobody is willing to pay for it. I am consistently surprised by releasing something that is, you know, much less powerful than you think. And then tons of people finding value from it right in its infancy. Uh, And then of course you iterate on it. So I wish we had that mentality sooner. Uh, I think we would have gotten to where we are faster. And I think a lot of founders, could be a little too, I don't know, precious is the right word around like what their idea is of like what's actually marketable. You'd be surprised uh, that it's, uh, it's probably something much earlier. Awesome. Thank you so much, Vlad. Yeah, Vlad. Thank you. This has been awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys. It was great. LPs, we will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time.